0: and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Therefore my brethren, dearly beloved, and longed for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odysseus, and beseech Sintiki, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel and with Clement also and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, for it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. Disunity has always been a major problem with God's people. Even in the Old Testament, you'll see records of civil wars and family fights amongst the people of Israel. Almost every local church mentioned in the New Testament had divisions to contend with, as we just saw in many of the verses that I just read. Those were almost all of those, if not all of those, were written to local churches. In almost every letter to churches, you see disunity and discord addressed. And as I see it, the two greatest threats to the church today and throughout history are doctrinal compromise and disunity among Christians. A church must guard against doctrinal compromise, standing strong for the purity of the faith once delivered to the saints. Paul made this clear in his letters. He said things like, if anybody, even an angel, preach another gospel unto you, let him be accursed. You cannot let just any doctrine come into the church. You cannot let just any belief system come into the church. You have to stand true and strong for doctrinal purity. We must stand firm, stay committed to Bible doctrine in our lives and in our church. No wavering. These things are not up for debate no matter what is politically correct, no matter what popular culture says. The farther and farther our nation gets away from biblical principles, the stranger and stranger biblical principles are going to seem to our population. But as a church, we cannot waver on those things. And doctrinal compromise is, is one of the greatest threats to the church today, and it has been throughout history. Paul He wrote Galatians. Why? Because of doctrinal compromise. He was teaching them against legalism. He wrote to the Corinthians. Why? Doctrinal compromise. They had allowed immorality and wickedness and vileness into the church. He writes, correcting doc- Romans, much doctrine in it. Writes to teach the church, we've got to believe the right things. But on the other hand, not only do we have to guard against doctrinal compromise, every church must also guard against ungodly division. Critical spirits and petty infighting over issues that are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. God hates discord among brethren. Let me say that again God hates discord among brethren. Proverbs says it this way, these six things that the Lord hey, a seven, are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, feet that are swift to run to evil, it goes through it. And the last one it says, it says, and he that soweth discord among brethren. You know the most serious um intense meetings that I've had in my seven and a half years in this church are are on a few rare occasions where I've had to address uh, good good men or women in our church that have have been causing some discord and seeking to cause division and disunity. God gave me that job as the overseer of the flock to protect the flock and guard from it. There are two grave dangers for a believer and a church. One is doctrinal compromise, and the other is is disunity among Christians. Unity in Christ's body is a cancer that attacks the very health of the body, and it is warned against and spoken of much in Scripture. There are two dangers in this area of, 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 of doctrinal compromise, if you will, and of these things in a church that we have to be on guard for. The first danger is when we elevate our personal preferences to the level of Bible doctrine. There's a danger in the church when we elevate our personal, and we all have them, we're going to get there in a minute, our personal preferences to the level of Bible doctrine. Because you see what happens when we do that, what happens when we do that is that we will unnecessarily divide from and condemn those who hold different preferences than us in our church or in other churches, because if we've elevated it to the level of Bible doctrine, then if they don't hold the same preferences we do, they are now false teachers. They have now drifted from the faith. If our preference is on the level of Bible doctrine and somebody doesn't hold our preference, now that is somebody to be divided from, to separate from, and so we have to be careful that we don't do that. But there's a danger on the other side. On the other side, the danger is when we lower Bible doctrine to the level of mere preference. And what happens here, and this happens, is happening in churches across our country and around the world, what happens here is then anything goes. And, and now any, well, that, that's a good brother. And yeah, you can kind of get in. Then we start holding hands with, 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 with faiths and with faith leaders and with people that do not believe in the deity of Christ and the, the, the blood atonement and the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection. And when we lower Bible doctrine to mere preference, we get, well, you just live your truth. And that's how you get churches that will, will affirm wicked gender ideologies and wicked definitions of marriage and will come out as a church I follow on social media. There's a, an account that I follow that, that posts some of these woke and, and, and liberally, uh, theologically liberal churches and some of the things. And it's crazy to me what will be taught from pulpits and what will be accepted in the name of God from people of the cloth, if you will. And what has happened, they have lowered Bible doctrine to the level of preference. Well, if you don't really like that, yeah, that's, that's, maybe that's not exactly what the Bible says. And well, you can do what you want to do. And, and, and the problem is these things are not preferential. They are clearly biblical. Those, those core Bible doctrines, if, if they are clearly biblical, they're not up for debate. But what about good, godly Christians who have strongly held opinions or maybe even beliefs that are in opposition to each other? The Bible tells us how to treat a false teacher, separate from them, cast them out, mark them, avoid them, correct them, church discipline them. The Bible tells us how, how to deal with a false teacher, where to cast them out, but does it instruct us on how to deal with a fellow believer with, with whom we disagree over some area of personal preference or practice? The answer is yes. The New Testament has a lot to say, actually, about how we should treat one another in the church when we disagree with each other in areas where the Bible is quiet. Would you turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter number 14? Romans chapter number 14. And over the next month or two, we're going to study through this chapter, as well as a few other passages, in a series that I've titled, Sacred Cows. Finding biblical, that's a key word there, biblical unity. I'll get there in a minute. Finding biblical unity even when we disagree. You know, and, and I'll talk more about this in the, in the coming weeks in this series, but it's amazing. Pastor Sammy, I was, I was a Bible college graduate. I had been on staff. I looked when I got this book. I read uh, the, 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 the thing that kind of opened my eyes to this chapter of Romans 14. It was a year before I came here, a little over a year before I came here. I had been in full-time ministry over a decade. And I don't know and, and maybe they did, and I just wasn't listening. I'm not saying that they didn't, but I don't remember personally ever studying Romans 14. I had taught a Sunday school class for over a decade. I never taught Romans 14, and I don't remember ever being taught or or hearing preaching from Romans 14 and some other passages like it where Paul writes to the church about how to deal with these areas where good people can differ and can disagree. And, and, and the Lord opened my eyes to some things here that were completely, and I— It's a shame that I didn't, but it was—I was was more than a decade into vocational ministry when this chapter really first came onto my radar, and God began to do a work in my heart. I want you to read this chapter with me, and as as we jump into this introductory message in this in this series, we're going to begin in chapter fourteen. I'll read verse number one; you read verse number two aloud. We'll go every other all the way through to the end of the chapter chapter, uh, Romans chapter number 14, I'll begin in verse number one, you join me in verse number two. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things. Another who is weak, eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up. For God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died, and rose, and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, To him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. In this passage, Paul addresses to some young Christians, some young believers, and and some people from different backgrounds, he addresses some sacred cows that were causing some problems in the church. What is a sacred cow? The term originated, of course, from the Hindu religion's belief that a cow is a sacred animal to be worshiped. That's not what I'm referencing here. In in today's vernacular, it has no reference to the Hindu religion. According to modern American dictionaries, a sacred cow is an idea, custom, or institution held often unreasonably above criticism. It is something that we believe strongly that nobody better touch. We hold it tightly, and nobody better change it, or criticize it, or, or, or believe something different. It's our sacred cow. It's that which we believe. How many of you that have been in churches for a while, have you ever seen a sacred cow in church? Something that somebody held really tightly, and when somebody else felt a little differently, it caused some friction. It caused some struggle. It caused some, some, some subtweets. It caused some backbiting. And Paul's dealing with that right here. He's dealing with that. Have you ever seen a sacred cow, maybe an idea or a program or a method or a tradition that we wouldn't say we worship, but as soon as something changes about it, we freak out. We start a petition. We call up for backroom meetings. We murmur. We start posting on social media about our dissatisfaction with how our sacred cow is being treated. Sadly, sometimes we even leave a church that we've called home for years or maybe even decades. For for this series, the way that I'm defining in the title of the series, a sacred cow would be this, a strongly held personal preference or belief that is neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. You see, anything that's commanded or forbidden in Scripture is not a sacred cow. That's Bible doctrine. That's truth. But there are things in the Christian life that you and I, based on upbringings and based on backgrounds and based on personal tastes and based on areas of the country where we were born and based on what we were taught and based on a whole bunch of things that we can land a little different on some areas that just like they did here in the New Testament 2,000 years ago. And, and when that happens, sometimes when it's not handled correctly, it often causes a church split. There are times when churches split over doctrine, but you know, the the ones at least that I'm aware of that in my 30 plus years of being a Christian, most of the time churches that split or have big discord and big disunity, most of the time it's not over false doctrine or false teaching. Most of the time it's over pride. It's over personality conflict. It's over preferences that we disagree about. And one group begins to get angry, they got their feelings hurt, and the pastor treated me this way, and these people did that to the pastor's wife, and the music director did this, and the assistant pastor did that, and the school teacher did this, and and we're going to—we're going to—and all of a sudden, because we we start digging our heels in, and the body of Christ, the cancer, comes into the body of Christ that destroys many. A strongly held personal preference or or belief that is neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture— I've heard of churches fighting and sometimes even splitting over things like the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. The position of the piano, I personally know of a pastor that when he came the piano was in a certain spot on the platform and he tried to move it and the church got in an uproar. The position of the piano on the platform, changing the worship service schedule, a fundraiser for a building program, the canceling of a favorite ministry or annual event. Views on eschatology, pre-, mid-, or post-tribulation rapture. Views where where good people disagree and both feel like they're supported somewhat in Scripture. Views that no matter where you land, it's not going to change anything about how God's going to do it. And it's not going to change anything about how you live your Christian life today. And yet, there have been good people that have had big blow-ups. I've read of preaching against, and in some cases, even personally heard of preaching against things like a man with a beard being ungodly. Tell that to Jesus. A preacher who doesn't wear a tie being a liberal, wire-rimmed glasses on men, a family or church having a Christmas tree being wrong. I I personally heard uh, a clip of preaching that said if somebody was not saved by hearing the King James Bible, then they're not going to heaven. Try to tell that to anybody in another language all around the world. Tell that to those that Pastor Sammy leads to Christ with the Spanish translation, Reina Valera. I've heard that. And And these sacred cows that we stand up and preach with authority and cause discord and disunity and division. I've heard preaching against homeschooling your children, a pastor putting his points up on the screen for people to see, colored light bulbs in a church, a choir not wearing robes. The late preacher and commentator Warren Wiersbe said, some of us can remember when dedicated Christians opposed Christian radio because Satan was the prince of the power of the air. And don't we often do that? We find a verse somewhere to weakly support our sacred cow. Don't listen to Christian radio. Why? Because they're teaching bad stuff? No, because Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So God could never redeem radio programming to be used for his glory. I don't remember that. But Warren Wearsby, I read it in a book. He said some of us are old enough to remember when people took strong stands against that because of that out of context verse. And the list unfortunately could go on. None of those things that I've mentioned are commanded or forbidden in Scripture, and yet good people have preached against and divided from or criticized other good men and women because they differed in these and other areas of preference and practice. Tonight's message title in this introductory message of the series is called, is this, What is Your Baby Cow's Name? What is your baby cow's name? Here's what I want us all to realize in this introductory message. We all have one or more of our cute little sacred baby cows that we have raised. For some of us, they might not be cute, and they might not be babies anymore. But they're strongly held personal preferences or beliefs that are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture, things we like, things we prefer, things we may even feel very strongly about. And by the way, let me stop and say this, according to this passage, that's okay. Here's the interesting thing, Paul doesn't tell them not to have their sacred cows. He doesn't tell them not to have their strongly held personal preferences and practices that are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. He doesn't tell them that. All of us are going to have that till the day that we die. But what He does tell them is you've got to learn how to deal with them scripturally. You've got to learn to navigate them. I want to give us a few thoughts this evening. Number one, I want you to realize that we all have them. Look at verse number two. Would you read verse number two aloud with me? Ready? Begin. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. And that's why he's weak. He doesn't get any steak. And so that's verse number five. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. What do we see in these verses? He says in the church there, you've got people, you, you have different strongly held beliefs in different areas. Some of it's in your private devotion, your dietary restrictions, your dietary laws. Some of it's in your private devotion. Some of it's in your public displays of worship. The days, the, the religious festivals or holidays that you keep and others, you didn't come from that background. And so to you, those days don't mean anything. And every day's the same. And God's blessed and sanctified every day. So why do we need to wait for some special day? We can rejoice and worship a resurrected Savior today just like we can on Easter Sunday. But some of you, he said, you view these things very Passover and and other things. And here's what I want us to realize. All of us have these. Everybody has opinions, right? As it's been said, opinions are like armpits. We all have them and a lot of them stink. (laughs) Paul actually doesn't tell them to get rid of them. He tells them how to handle the disagreements over them. You see, Paul didn't tell them to get rid of their sacred cows. He told them to get along with each other in spite of them. I'm not going to stand up here because it would go against the teaching of Scripture and preach to you, I want you all to land in exactly the same area that I've landed in every area of of my Christian belief and practice. That would go against Scripture. Paul didn't tell them, do everything the way that I do it. Paul tells them, I can eat all the meat. I, none of those days matter to me. And Paul was a Jew of the Jew, but he said, Christ saved me from all that. That stuff, I don't have any hang-ups with that stuff. God's given me liberty. I don't, I'm okay with that. But Paul didn't say, you have to be like me. Paul said, you need to show grace and love and respect to one another even when you differ. And he told them as he's writing to them, and we'll see it again in Corinthians, he does the same thing in different areas. He tells them, he says, you all have them. And it takes spiritual maturity to do this right here, why? Because if it's my baby cow, I obviously think I'm right, that's why I hold this very strongly. I came to a conclusion, I came maybe after some study, or after some teaching, or after just personal experience. And by the way, how do we know if it's a sacred cow? Often it will be with-we we describe it, and we talk about it, and we defend it with words like, I feel, and I think, well, I was taught, well, I, I really feel strongly, I really think this. Why? It's ours. That's, that's what, what, what we're, we're comfortable with, and we all have those. We all have our comfort zones. We all have those things that are our preferences we would like a little better, even as it relates to our Christian walk and our church experience. But it takes spiritual maturity to get along with each other in spite of our differences. Why? Because if it's my baby cow, I obviously think I'm right, and if someone does something differently than me, they must be wrong. It's in our, it's in our nature to choose sides, to find those that think like us and to gather with them, and to divide from those that don't think like us, and to criticize and, and, and downplay and demean them. We choose our favorite sports team, and what do we do? We hate our rivals. We choose sides. If you're a Republican, who do you automatically think is wrong? And if you're a Democrat, who do you automatically think is wrong? Because you chose to be one or the other. And so if I landed here, I landed here for good reason. And here's why I believe this. And so anybody, and this is, it's in our human nature. But when it comes to scripture, when it comes to the the body of Christ, when it comes to the church, we need to understand these things. If you grew up with certain traditions and you got married and your spouse grew up with totally different traditions, whose traditions do you like better? Yours. Your family did it right. Her family or his family is weird, right? And all God's people said, I like my weird family's traditions, I don't like your weird family's traditions. Sammy, when does your family open Christmas presents? Midnight Midnight on Christmas Eve. Doctrinally speaking, that doesn't even make any sense because Santa Claus hasn't even come yet. (laughs) So just to be honest, that's dumb. That's a really dumb practice and position. Our family, and we're going to have a church split. Our family does it the way that all people that worship Christ do, we open it on Christmas morning. Now, we open one on Christmas Eve, a little compromise in our home. We open one on Christmas Eve, not at midnight, we go to bed long before midnight. We open one on Christmas Eve, and then we open the rest on Christmas morning. Sammy, whose practice do you think is better? Whose? And whose practice do I think is better? And how many of you agree with Pastor Sammy? Let me see. How many of you agree with Pastor Sammy? How many of you agree with Pastor Ryan? All right. About maybe half and half. How many of you didn't raise your hand and you're not willing to to join sides and get part of the church split? (laughs) Here's the reality. Who's right and who's wrong? Neither. Both. Both are right. But we can feel very strongly about our traditions, about our, our our upbringings, about what we do. Neither is wrong, but we naturally gravitate to what we know, what we are comfortable with, how we were brought up. It, in, in our Christian lives, it might be related to service format or to style of music, to a type of preaching. Some might like the wind-sucking, camp-meeting preacher. Others might like the monotone teacher. Others might think that I, I'm too excited, and I walk around too much, and they can't handle it. And others are like, man, I love the energy. I love the passion. And, A lot of that depends on personality, and a lot of that depends on how you were brought up—what you're used to. You know that God can use monotone—I think it was Jonathan Edwards. He read sinners in the hands of an angry God from a script standing there monotone, and people were clinging to the pillars under Holy Ghost conviction. God can use a monotone teacher just like he can use a wind-sucking camp meeting preacher from Alabama. He can use all different styles, but whatever we're used to, we tend to affirm and criticize that which we're not used to. So what about you? It might be type of preaching, standards of dress, architecture of a church building, and the list goes on. Uh, When I came here, I walked up and the sign outside of this building, it said on the sign worship center. You probably have walked by that sign a million times and never thought anything of it. Do you know I noticed the first time I came on the property because I literally have sat in a service and heard a a preacher preach against naming your auditorium a worship center? That's a really, in my opinion, dumb thing to preach about because it's nowhere in Scripture. But for him, that was a strongly held belief. And for here, you've never thought, now you're going to walk by it. No, I wonder if we should have named it that or not. We might not have even named it. It might have been already named that when we moved here. Who knows? I don't know how that came about. But, but what am I saying? It's, a lot of it's about how you were brought up and what you're used to, and what you're, but we all have them. So what's your baby cow's name? How do I identify my sacred cow? If I'm tempted to criticize or condemn those who do things a little differently than me in an area, that's probably my sacred cow. Verse number three, do you see what it says? Paul said, let not him that eateth, notice what he says, despise. See the verb there? Despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him. What does he say? One group despises the other. They don't believe like me in this area that is neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. This area where God gives. By the way, there are some real black and whites in Scripture. And we're going to stand strong for those no matter what it costs. That's what God's called us to do as believers and as a church. But, but, but spoiler alert, there are also some gray areas in the Christian life where good people can differ. Now the key is that we don't justify our flesh and our and what we want to just be, be, be carnal and fleshly as being a gray area where the Bible clearly speaks about it. But the other thing we don't want to do, we don't want to lower, uh, elevate our preference to the level of Bible doctrine, but we also don't want to lower doctrine to the level of preference. And he says, be careful that one group despises the group that doesn't believe like them. The other group judges them. Can you believe? Can you believe that church named their auditorium a worship center? Can you believe they did that? Can you believe they don't have an organ or they have an organ? They don't have a choir. They have a choir. Can you believe? By the way, show me the New Testament where it's, we have a choir. I love a choir. I'm not planning to get rid of the choir. In fact, I'd like 25 more of you to join the choir. But show me one place in the New Testament where it says we should have a choir. It's not in there. It's an area of practice. It's an area of preference. It's an area of tradition. There are choirs in the Bible. You'll see here and there choirs, there's a choir in heaven. I don't think there's anything wrong with the choir, I have no plans to get rid of it. But all of a sudden, whatever kind of becomes our flavor, our tribe, we start—and we start despising those that don't have what we have, we start judging those that do those things, and we need to realize we all have little cows in our life. We all have these sacred cows. If I'm tempted to criticize or condemn someone who does something a little differently than me without scriptural support, that's probably my sacred cow. If My first response is, well, I don't think, well, I don't feel like it's right, I don't don't like it, but I have no scripture to back it up. That's probably my sacred cow. Number two, uh, by way of introduction, I want us to recognize where they came from. I've already said this, but if your strongly held belief that you divide with other brothers about, that you you, you have these lines of separation about, if they come from clear scriptural teaching and, and commandment, it's not a sacred cow, it's biblical doctrine. So where do sacred cows come from? Do you see number three? Verse three, I'm sorry. Let not him that eateth. Despise him that eateth not. What was he addressing? Their diet. Why was this a big deal? Who was in this church? Who were in these churches that he was writing to? Jews and Gentiles. Jews grew up with strict dietary laws. They grew up, and you didn't touch bacon. Pray for them. And they didn't, you didn't touch lobster. And you had these strict dietary laws. Certain things you ate on certain t- on Sabbath. You ate certain things, and at Passover you ate certain things. And they had these. And they, it was not it was not just a preference. It was a part of the Old Testament law that their families had been doing for centuries and centuries and centuries. These were not just well. I read I read an article about the keto diet. I think I'll try it. These were strongly held religious beliefs that did come from scripture. But when Christ came, He fulfilled the. And now the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, by the way, they dealt with this at the council at Jerusalem with circumcision with the ceremonial laws they had already dealt with this and they had said this is not required any longer we don't have it's why you and i if you have liberty in this area which i do can eat bacon we have liberty in that area why because christ fulfilled the law those dietary laws those ceremonial laws from the old testament are no longer the the new testament believers no longer under them but in this church there were some jews who had been saved by faith they were christians but they were still keeping to those dietary laws and what were they doing? They were despising those Gentile Christians that didn't. And the Gentile Christians were judging them. And by the way, who else was in the church? It wasn't just the Jews, but it was the Gentiles. There were some here in Rome at the book, the book to the Romans that had been saved out of a pagan culture. They had been saved out of a godless, wicked culture that, that worshiped idols. You'll see more of this talked about in, the, in the, book of Cor- at the book of Corinthians. And what happened? What did they used to do when they were growing up? What did they do? They offered meat to idols. And so what was happening, much of the meat that that was for sale that you could get in Rome there would still be meat that was at some point in its life associated with idol worship. And so these, these that had been saved out of idol worship, these that associated that meat with worshiping idols, they couldn't in a good conscience eat that meat. But the Jews had no problem. They realized that's not the real God. That, 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 that idol does nothing to that meat. Hey, you got a free steak? It was sitting in front of that little golden statue for a minute? I'll eat it. It didn't bother them at all. Why? Because it hadn't been a part of how they had been brought up. It wasn't a part of their church tradition. It wasn't a part of their family tradition. It wasn't a part of their cultural tradition. The Jews had no problem eating that meat. And so for some of them, on both sides, some of it, it was the Mosaic Law, others of it, it was the fact that the meat was associated with idol worship. On both sides, Jews and Gentiles, some had liberty to eat that meat, and others didn't have liberty to eat the meat, and it was causing great discord and division amongst believers. It was getting their focus off the important things. By the way, he says it in verse number, uh, where is it? He says it in verse number, uh, uh, oh man, Um, verse number is it, verse 17, he said, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. He said, you guys have gotten your eyes so far off the big picture of what really matters. You're focused on who does or who doesn't eat meat, who does or doesn't follow my rules. You've got, it's not that, it's Christ, it's the Holy Ghost, it's the gospel, it's the good news. You've got, you've lost sight of the big picture because of your sacred cow. God himself, you remember Peter in the book of Acts? Remember that vision he had? All that meat? And Peter said, it's unclean. Why? Peter had been saved. By the way, Peter had spent three years with Christ. Peter knew all of this, but he still had some hang-ups. The way I say it in my own life, the old Pharisee dies hard. And the old Pharisee for Peter died hard. And what did God say? God said, rise, kill, and eat. He said, Peter, there's nothing unclean about that. Go enjoy some lobster. Go enjoy some bacon. And what did Peter say in the book of Acts? Not so, Lord. He couldn't do it. He had this sacred cow, no pun intended. And God said, get rid of your sacred cow and go eat some cow. It, God had to tell him three times, get over your hang-up, Peter. It's not, that has nothing to do with following me. You, you keeping this, you not eating bacon is not making you any better of a Christian in my sight. This is not what you're under any longer. It, but we, we see, where does it come from? Recognize where our sacred cows come from. They, they come often from our religious upbringing or lack thereof, as it did with the Jews and the Gentiles. I know Christians who won't put up a Christmas tree in their home, and I'm not preaching against this, because for them, they've been taught it has pagan associations. I'll be honest with you. I would never heard that until I was in my 20s or 30s. I was in a church for 20-plus years and never heard any Christian talk about that. I've had a Christmas tree in my home all 40-plus all years of my life. We had one this last year. That's, that's not a hang-up for me at all. And, and, and it was never a thing at the church where I was saved, my home church. And so we put a giant Christmas tree in the lobby here this year, and we had Christmas trees up on the platform. But there are good believers that for them, it's a personal belief. They will not put a Christmas tree in their home. Are they wrong? No. What is wrong is if they expect me to do what they have come to in their area, or I expect them to do what I, I become a stumbling block to them, or they become a stumbling block to me. You know what the Bible says here? We can both hold on to these and just make them what they are, insignificant pieces of our personal preference and practice, and we all work toward for the fellowship of the gospel together. We don't get hung up on these things, and where do they come from? They come from our family upbringings, they come from our religious upbringings, our church history. We sometimes equate our personal experience and our religious upbringing with God's law. Let me say that again. We sometimes equate our personal experience and our religious upbringing with God's law, and sometimes it's nothing more than our personal experience and what we are used to it has nothing to do with God's law. There are many things in Scripture that are right and wrong, but not everything falls under that category. When I moved here, I had only been a member of one church. I had been to many other churches, preaching and traveling and things of that nature, but I would only been a member of one church, and it was weird to me. The first time I came to a service here, it was weird to me that you guys put words to the songs up on the screens, and you didn't tell everybody to open a hymnal. In fact, when I came, so I, I tried to help, help you guys out. When I came, you didn't even have hymnals in the pew racks, because they had been destroyed in a flood right before I got here, and they were all water damaged. And so one of the first things I did when I got here, because- All I've done for 25 years is open a hymnal and sing out of it every single time, and it was weird to me that this church put words on the screen, and when the choir was singing there were words on the screen, and it was super distracting to me, and I didn't like it because I had never seen it. And does the Bible say anything about not putting words on the screen or not putting words on the screen? Does the Bible say anything about that? No, but I didn't like it. And in fact, one of our first staff meetings, I came and I said, why do we have the words on the screen? I understand during congregational, but during specials, the duet that's singing, they know the words they're singing. Why do we have the words on the screen? I don't really like that. And it was funny, because my wife and I were back at our home church for her parents' 50th anniversary, and and, and they still don't put words up on the screen there. And we were there, and the choir was singing, and if anyone's watching, this is not a criticism. I I love—it's beautiful music. I love the choir. When I go back to my home church, it's a a 100-plus voice choir. It's beautiful, beautiful orchestra. And they were singing a song. I had not heard the song before, and I told my wife, honestly, I don't know what half the words were. I don't know what half the message of the song was. I said. I wish they would put words on the screen so I could know what the choir was singing. It only took me seven years on the slippery slope to become like you guys. And you know, I went back, and it's, I don't care if they put them on or not, but for me, I like it now because it helps me to read and think about what they're singing, and I don't miss a phrase, and it goes along with it. Is it right or wrong? No, it's just my personal upbringing. When when I came, you didn't have a choir on Sunday night, I thought you were weird, and you went to a rescue mission every month. Our church never did that, and you didn't live stream every service, and you did an announcement video and offering at the end of the service instead of having a pastor stand up and give the announcement and take an offering before the preaching like all good Christians do. And the pastor sometimes didn't wear a tie for some services. And in the summer, you had summer elective small groups instead of a Wednesday night Bible study. And you sang songs every Sunday that I didn't know. And you let people give their offering online. We didn't have that option in the only church I knew. And the list goes on. What am I saying? You guys were really weird and messed up when I got here. And I've been trying to fix you for seven years, and I'm not doing a very good job. You're corrupting me, because now I like words on the screen. And I like, when I preach, I love having the points up there. It helps me to understand it, and, and to, what am I saying? Different churches do things differently, and different pastors have different comfort levels, and different believers have, have different preferences. But, 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 but what, God, what Paul tells us is we all have our sacred cows, but be careful that don't- he said here in, in chapter 14, don't destroy the church for meat. Don't destroy the church for meat. Don't destroy the church. Don't condemn and criticize and judge and despise another good brother because they have liberty in an area you don't have liberty in. That's what Paul is teaching here. When I came because of all the weird stuff you did, I had to take inventory and ask myself, do I not like the way they do that because it's wrong or because it's just not what I'm used to? Some of the Jews and some of the Gentiles both felt very strongly about these areas of days and diet because their family upbringing, their religious background, their comfort levels were so very different. They came from different places. They were on opposite sides of the issues, and both thought they were right, and it was causing division that was displeasing to God in his church. It was hindering the furtherance of the gospel. These sacred cows were personal, not scriptural. They were fighting about who was right, and Paul says this, you're both right. Be persuaded in your own mind. What's not right is trying to force your personal practice on others, Paul said. It's important for us to delineate between personal and scriptural. And by the way, again, I'm not telling you what I'm comfortable with and you're not, you have to become comfortable with. And what you're comfortable with and I'm not, I'm not telling you I have to become—I'm telling you we need to understand those things that, those things that are not uh, uh, essential. To the Word of God and to the gospel of Christ, to the fundamentals of our faith, we need to give each other some space, some grace, some liberty for people to have some different cultural, regional, generational upbringings. Do you know if anybody from 100 years ago walked into this church, they would be horrified. Horrified. I'm looking around right now that only four or five of you, I took mine off, have a suit coat. And the only people that actually—oh, six. There's only three of us that really love the Lord. Me, Keith. It's something to do with Keith. It's Keith Blair and Keith Gilbert have coats and ties on today, but they wouldn't be happy with you, Keith Gilbert, because you've got a colored shirt on. 100 years ago, that would have been that would have been very inappropriate. And ladies, none of you would make it in church 100 years ago, because not one of you is wearing a hat today. And you know what? Things change with generations and with cultures. And you go to other countries today, and things are different. Pastor Sammy has preached in other countries around the world, and you find out many of these things, they're not wrong, but they're cultural, they're generational, they're regional. We need to give some grace and some space. It's important to delineate between personal and scripture. scriptural. I won't, I won't continue on here in verse number five, but he talks about public displays of worship, the days the Jews felt very strongly about their Old Testament religious holidays. But what I will say is this, that thing you're struggling with another brother or another church or another Christian on social media about, I want you to take inventory and I want you to ask yourself this, do I feel strongly about this because God feels strongly about this? Or do I feel strongly about this because I feel strongly about this and I was taught to feel strongly about this? If it's because God feels strongly about it, not, it's not up for debate. It's not a sacred cow, it's Bible truth. And if it's because I feel strongly about it, then Paul said, don't destroy the church over me. Because I was taught—and it's not wrong, I was taught—they were taught these things. It's not wrong, but be careful that you don't unnecessarily destroy good relationships over unscriptural—and when I say unscriptural, I would say extra-biblical, not unbiblical—extra-biblical personal preferences and practices recognize where our sacred cows come from, our family, our influences, our church upbringing, our experience in the world before salvation, a former pastor, our current pastor, all of these things influence where our sacred cows come from. Then lastly, in our introductory week, i want to challenge you. What does Paul tell them? Seek unity, not uniformity. Seek unity, not uniformity. Verse number three, what does he say? Don't despise him that eateth not, and don't judge him that eateth. Look at this. For God hath received him. God's okay with both of them, even though you're not. God is more mature than us in these areas of preference. God has a bigger view, a higher view than we do. He said, you don't need to change each other. Seek unity, not uniformity. What is the first verse? Verse number one of chapter 14. Him that is weak in the faith. By the way, we'll get into this in coming weeks. It's interesting. He calls the believer with more rules, weak. I didn't do that, he did. He said the believer that has less liberty and needs more rules in their life, they're actually the weaker brother, but here's what he says, him that is weak in the faith, look what he says, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Don't get in a bunch of arguments, don't get in a big social media fight, don't get going on, he said receive them because God has received them. Seek unity, he'd never told them, you that can't eat, learn how to eat, and you that know how to eat, stop eating. He never said that, he said if you eat, it's to the Lord, and if you don't eat, it's to the Lord, he said, seek unity, not uniformity. We're going to get into it in more detail, but this whole chapter is about limiting our liberty and backing off from our strongly held personal preferences for the sake of gospel unity in the church. Here's what the gospel is supposed to do, church family and those watching online. The gospel is supposed to take a bunch of people from different religious upbringings, different social classes, different families of origin, different countries of birth, different pre-salvation testimonies, different post-salvation experiences, different college, uh, different levels of education. It's supposed to take people from all these different places, and what it's supposed to do is supposed to bring us into a beautiful family that loves one another, and that serves one another, and that encourages one another, and that cheers for one another. And Paul said, I don't care if they're preaching to try to hurt me. If the gospel is preached, I rejoice. And the gospel is supposed to take a bunch of people that feel really differently about a lot of different things, and it's supposed to bring us together so that we all say it's all for His glory, not our namesake. So what does it say when we fight over stupid stuff? What does it say to those that are watching on the outside when a church splits over the color of the carpet? What does it say? It says the gospel, if the gospel doesn't have the power to change us and our our hearts toward each other, why would it have the power to change the world? I like what one pastor friend of mine said, we don't have to be twins to be brothers. We do have to be brothers to be brothers. I'm not saying holding hands with people that worship Allah and worship and, 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 and pray to Mary and, and, and say—I'm not saying—we have to be brothers to be brothers. We have to be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is not, this is not unity at all costs. This is not kumbaya. We have to be brothers to be brothers, but we don't have to be twins to be brothers. Look, if you will, at verse number six. Look at verse number six, if you will. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. The one that keeps the special holidays, he's doing it from a sincere heart. He feels strongly about it, and God accepts it. And he that regardeth not the day, he thinks it's stupid. To the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord. And he giveth God thanks. Thank you, God, for this filet mignon. And he that eateth kale only, the herbs he said, he, he eateth not to the Lord he eateth not and giveth God thanks look at verse number 19 let us therefore follow after the things let us therefore follow after the things which make for what church peace and things wherewith one may edify another for meat destroy not the work of God all things indeed are pure but is evil for that man who eateth with offense he says he said there's there there is no more dietary restrictions from the old testament for the believer but if there's a believer that that is still a sacred cow to them and they can't they can't in good conscience eat that meat then don't eat it but don't worry about it don't worry if others are keep loving jesus keep loving each other keep preaching christ Keep, keep, keep lifting him up. Don't destroy the church, the work for me. Don't destroy another believer. Don't destroy a church. Don't lose wonderful relationships over petty, personal things that you have a little different feeling or belief about. I'm okay with your, your mind and little different feelings, but don't destroy these things. Again, I'm not preaching unity at all costs. Doctrine divides, but preferences shouldn't. And by the way, and I'm almost done. It isn't usually doctrine that divides churches and causes people to leave churches. It's usually our preferences. In my seven and a half years here, I could be missing one, and I'm not trying—if if, if you have, remind me and I'll correct it next Sunday. I can't remember a single time I've had either an angry email, text message, confrontation on the property, or somebody request a meeting to come talk to me about false teaching or some doctrine, some heresy that they're concerned that they, they or their children have been learning in our church. I can't remember one in seven and a half years. I don't believe, I'm not saying we have it perfect, I'm not saying we never make a mistake, but I don't believe that there is false doctrine being promoted and, 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 and uh, preached in any of our ministries. I can't remember one in seven and a half years, anybody coming and saying, Pastor Ryan, we feel like we have to leave liberty because that... that thing you're preaching and teaching goes against Scripture. It's not, it's not biblical doctrine, and here's where we're at. But in those seven years, probably, on average, it's not a lot, but probably one or two families every year have left because something was done that they disagreed with strongly, but that there was little to no scriptural support for. I'll use an illustration in a coming week, but it happened within the first week that I got here. I won't to go too deeply into it, but a member came, a good member that I love to this day. And they came to share some of their concerns about Pastor Tomlinson, a man that had faithfully served here for 25 years, and they they laid it out and said, there's a group of us that feel this way. And I looked and I said, can you help me understand what's displeasing to Christ about what you're describing or what goes against any scriptural principles? And what it came down to is they just didn't like it, which is okay. But what's not okay is to cause division because you just don't like it. What's not okay is to destroy great relationships because you just don't like it. Paul said, let's be bigger than that. Let's limit our liberty for the sake of unity, for the sake of the gospel. It's interesting, almost always when someone leaves for a reason like this, not every time, but I would say the vast majority, they don't have the spiritual maturity or respect to even come talk about that issue. Often they just disappear. I'm not saying this in, in an unkind way. I'm not saying this to be angry or hurtful if one of them's watching online. I don't believe you can talk to our staff. I don't believe I've ever talked negatively about any person that's left our church. I would love for any of them to come back. But I'll tell you as a pastor, that's hurtful. It's discouraging. And I was there at midnight when they were, had, had a, a, a situation with first responders that they called in the middle of the night. and We can't even talk about this, sacred cow? We can't even talk about how God's leading in your life. We can't even, we're not, we're not mature enough to even open up scripture. Be careful, Satan would love to use anything to come into our hearts and to cause us to destroy the church over meat. A spiritually mature believer will work through their differences with another believer. An immature believer will condemn, we see here, despise, judge, verse number 10 he says, why do you set it not your brother basically he says you write them off you you say they're of no value why do you set it not your brother over meat over personal things your diet over public displays of worship your days why do you set it not a brother over those things god save us from this liberty we need each other We don't need uniformity, but we do need God-honoring, Christ-magnifying unity in our church. And I thank God that by and large, I believe we have it and have had it for the seven and a half years I've been here, and I praise God for it. But Satan would love to attack. If you've been a part of a church for any length of time, you know that he does. By the way, we need it within our church, and we need that Spirit of God to other gospel-preaching churches. I prayed this morning with our family in our driveway before we came here. I prayed for our services today, and I prayed as I try to every Sunday. I prayed for every Bible-preaching church in our country and around the world that the gospel would go forth. We need everyone that we can get. We don't need to keep splitting ourselves off into smaller and smaller sections of the pie. And we're the only ones doing it right, and we're the only ones, we're like Elijah syndrome. I'm the only one left that loves God, and what does God say? No, there are 7,000 that haven't bent the knee. My friend, Pastor Kurt Skelly, he says this, he says, most of the world, we're, here in America, we're fighting over which flavor of ice cream is best, while most of the world has never had a taste. He said something like, if the gospel were ice cream, we're fighting over which of the 31 flavors is the best, and most of the world has never had a taste. God keep us from that spirit. Again, I'm not talking about unity at all costs. I'm not talking about not standing true, and if you see that I'm weak on doctrine, please come to me. If you see that I'm not preaching the gospel straight and true, I want to be uh, talked to and and, and and even corrected. I would love for an Aquila or Priscilla to come and to show me the, God of, the word of God more thoroughly. I- I'm open to that. Because it's not my church, it's his. We don't don't back down from gospel truth, from Bible truth. But what we don't need to do is criticize other good churches, other good pastors, other good church members, because they land somewhere a little differently than we do. Quit fighting over stupidity. Quit separating over personality differences. Quit condemning over your tradition. Rejoice that God uses all different people and preferences. All over the world. I'll let you know on a little secret. We're going to spend eternity with them. <laughs> you might as well start getting along with them now. And here's the danger the brother with more liberty often despises the weaker brother with more rules. And the weaker brother with more rules often judges the brother with more liberty. There's a danger on both sides. Those idiots, they're they're still holding to that archaic stuff, all that old-fashioned stuff. You don't need all that. God's given us liberty. God can't use them. How could God ever use somebody that's so worldly and carnal and fleshly? They they don't have all the rules I have, and they judge them. Am I keeping you up, Steve? You okay? You all right? Steve gave me a good, loud yawn there. And... uh, And both sides, both sides of this, we start to think God can't use the other. And Paul says, Paul says, God's received them both. God's received them both. So why don't you? Why don't I? We're going to spend eternity with them. We should probably learn to get along with them down here. So what's your baby cow's name? We all have them. Identify them. Realize where they came from. And then delineate between scriptural and personal. And if it's personal, that's between you and the Lord. You know, God has changed some of my preferences in the last 20 years. I'm not even talking about spiritually. I'm just talking about life. Things that I like to do, food that I like to eat, places I like to go, habits, hobbies. God has changed. And then in my spiritual life, God has changed some of my preferences in the last 20 years. That's okay. And God may change some of your preferences. That's okay. But what we need to be careful of is that we don't destroy the work for meat. Ask ourselves, is that personal or is that scriptural? And if it's personal, can I limit my liberty a little bit for the sake of unity? Can I receive that one that God's received? And maybe, I don't want to be, if what I have liberty in is a stumbling block to that person, then let me not do that. He said, Paul said, if it's a stumbling block to somebody, I'll never eat meat again. I'm okay. I, 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 it's not that important to me. I'm not going to lose a good brother over that. I, I'll, I'll limit that complete preference so that I don't lose a good brother. That's the spirit of Christ. That's the spirit God wants for His church. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty.